So over the last uh, few weeks, we've kind of been walking through the core tenets of uh, our church here at Summit. What are some of the things? What, is that the right phrasing, Travis? Even okay. And so we kind of started with uh, abiding deeply in Christ and knowing and living from Scripture. Um, and then the last couple of weeks, what does it mean to have a heart for the lost? And so I'm going to be able, over the course, hopefully, of the next little while, to kind of conclude that portion uh, of this series, and then we'll move into uh, discipleship and uh, spiritual generations in the next few weeks. Um, I know Travis last week spent some time in, in Luke 19 talking specifically um, of the idea of Jesus as one who comes to seek and to save that which is lost. Um, and it's kind of one of those phrases in this society that we don't necessarily like to use. Um, I don't like to attribute it to my friends. Um, I certainly wouldn't want to inform them that they're in fact lost and that I am in fact enlightened somehow. Um, and yet there it is, is a word that Jesus uses specifically uh, to talk about somebody that he's pursuing actively. And that's kind of why we use it. Um, so tonight I'm going to walk through a bit of Matthew 9 with you. I'd like to touch on four things with you specifically uh, over the course of the evening. Number one, the people in the crowds. Uh, number two, the, pa the posture of compassion. Number three, the trouble with lostness. And then number four, uh, a prayer request from Jesus himself. And so as we walk through uh, this together this evening, I'd like to pray with you to begin, uh, and then we'll, we'll kind of dive in a little bit more. Uh, Father God, thank you so much for the chance that we have to meet and talk through your word. Uh, Lord, I ask by your Holy Spirit that you would move in each of us. Lord, that you would only allow those things to settle on our hearts, those things that are from you, and that all other things would blow away. Uh, and Lord, that we would be able by your word to be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to start with verse 35, and I'd like to, it, it's going to be here, I, I'm guessing, maybe, no, but I really want you to open your mind's eye over the course of the next couple of minutes, because I'm going to walk through a couple of things with you. Um, I want you to picture this. Verse 35 says, when Jesus went, and Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Very simple verse thrown right in the beginning of this passage, but can you see it? Can you picture what this would have looked like? Now, he wasn't flying into Tel Aviv, right, and then holding a Billy Graham-style revival in the, in the stadium, right? This was him walking town to town, engaging with those that he came in contact with, sharing the gospel, healing all of their wounds, and healing their afflictions. Uh, I don't know about you, the last time I walked down the streets of Portland healing people, I, I haven't frequently. I do in my line of work get to share the gospel pretty regularly, which is excited, exciting. And I have from time to time been able to sit with people who are experiencing p different pieces of affliction and be able to walk through with it, that with them. And so I kind of have an idea what it looks like in this context, but I wonder what the crowds looked like then. Because it seems like everywhere he went, they gathered. What were the crowds that he would have experienced? We hear a lot about lepers during that time. If he's, if he's healing, I'm sure that was part of it. Um, and Travis has walked through a number of stories. Um, he talked through Mark 2 with the, the four friends who were just so compassionate for their friend 
that they had to put him at the feet of Jesus and did whatever it took and broke through the roof of the house and actually lowered him down at Jesus' feet. And so many different things like that that would go on and as I imagine the crowds that were around Jesus, um, so significant that they actually couldn't get him in any other, <laughs> any other way. And it began to make me think about today. What do crowds look like today? And so I asked my daughter if she would walk through and just kind of piece together in her mind, and we, we talked through a handful of different things, what types of crowds are around today that we see. And so she pieced together just a small sampling of crowds that exist today. And as we begin to talk about crowds and who the people in the crowds are, as I went through this, I would be lying to you if my first posture was one of compassion at every slide. There are places where I looked and said, I'd prefer that those people not be in my church because they're going to make things messy. I would prefer that those people there not be around my children because they might be a little scary to me. Oh, that group there, those are my people. I like them. I could hang out with them. That would be okay. Yep, that's a group I feel poorly for. I feel bad for that group. That makes me sad. Oh, that group there, they need Jesus. That group especially needs Jesus. Right? Great posture. And as we but as we continue on through this passage, the very next verse says, in verse 36, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And it just brought to mind vividly how little like Jesus I am sometimes. And my guess is if that's true of me, it's likely true of some of you also. What is the posture of compassion? We're beginning to see different crowds. And these crowds are different for you even than they are for me and certainly than they are for my daughter. There are people that you are associating with and that are in your sphere of influence that are very different than mine. You see people every day that I've never met and vice versa. Who are the crowds around you currently? As we get into some real practical applications of what it means to have a heart for the lost. Who are the crowds? And then what's the posture of compassion? As we looked at some of the stories of, of the way that Jesus does things, I'd like to suggest that compassion is actually closer to soul care than anything else that I can come up with. And it involves the physical, the mental, the emotional, and the spiritual part of who we were created by God to be in his image. We contain each of these things. And I would suggest to us, as we begin to talk about what compassion is, it would be having our eyes open to those that are closest to us, those open, our eyes open to those who are near the crowds, that we see people, and we can begin to be able to understand them, to know them, and then be able to begin to figure out what's the best way to minister to them. 
There are a number of people who came up to Jesus who he simply healed physically. That was his first act. But the person who got lowered down through the house what was the first act there. Does anybody remember? Your sins are forgiven. It was the very first thing he said. He went right to the spiritual with that particular person. And Jesus has the advantage of being God and knowing the heart fully. I, we, we have to kind of perceive it other ways, right? Well, let me suggest this. In my house, it is a well-known fact that I have attained this thing called perfection. You be quiet. <laughs> right? It's Father's Day. That's my... No, I'm kidding. And especially when we hit evening and my blood sugar is a little wonky and I really need to eat something, I am a gift to everyone around. I'm a joy to live with. It is bliss to be in my presence when I hit those places. And I will tell you this in all honesty, if somebody walks up to me in that moment when I'm really struggling, when I'm frustrated and on the verge of flipping tables over, if somebody walks up to me and says, you really ought to pray about that, <laughs> we're calling the police, that's all I'm telling you. We're probably gonna have to call the police. But there are people in our lives that are in the same boat and all of a sudden they come up and, and life is falling apart completely and the first thing we tell, well, have you prayed about that? Right? I do that all the time in my superiority. I think we should pray together. We should pray about that. That would be the best option. Maybe the reality, however, is that a good meal would really be the best start. Please don't neglect the spiritual. It's an important part of our soul. Please don't neglect it. But let's make sure that we take care of some other pieces before we dive directly to the spiritual issues that might be in play. Can we agree to that? Maybe what's needed is a walk on a beach and to see a sunset, to exhale for a moment, take a break from what we're doing. That might be what's needed. And then we can sit down and pray together when we're feeling a bit better. Restoration between my daughter and I happens not when I'm ready to flip tables. It happens later when I'm back to being human again. And so the posture of compassion, I would suggest, involves recognizing who people are, what they actually need in the moment. But then I would also suggest as we begin to get into the spiritual, that we begin to show them our own scars, our own brokenness, our own issues before we dive into their need for Jesus. Please don't forget this. Please don't neglect the spiritual. It's an important part of who we are. But also, let's not neglect the rest of the body as well. The people that we were created to be by God. That has its own real needs. Number three is the problem of lostness. And we've used that word already. The, the verse goes on to say, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Anybody ever work with sheep? Can you imagine how they function when the shepherd is not around? Chaos. It is chaos. And in an agrarian society, everybody hearing this would know what this is. right? In this place where it's all farming and agriculture, you're going to have this set where people are going to understand what sheep without a shepherd actually are. It is get out the road, we're trying to move here. It is 
all over, and then somebody elects a leader within the sheep. Is this correct? And then they will follow that sheep no matter where they go. Over cliff, no problem. <laughs> We're all going. It's chaos. And Jesus sees this in the crowds, this level of chaos in their lives, this level of non-direction, this level of, let's be frank when it comes to sheep, stupidity. Let's use ignorance. Ignorance. <laughs> it's probably a better word. And so we look at Romans 3, and it says, For all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. What I love about this verse is, yes, it uses the word sin, which is another thing in today's society we kind of got to back away from a little bit if we actually want to have real conversations. However, if we're going to talk to people out of Scripture, which was living and understanding and living from the Scriptures, sin's a real thing. It's a real thing in our world. It's a real thing in this room. It's a real thing in me. And the cool thing about this verse is I believe it actually defines it as well. And I believe it's falling short of God's glory. Any place in our lives where we see ourselves falling short of the glory of God is a place where we probably need to take a look at the sin that's going on inside of us. A couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with a, somebody that may become a friend. I don't know if he's going to be a friend, but somebody that's an acquaintance right now. And as we've bumped into each other over the course of the last while, said, you know, we should sit down and get lunch sometime. He's a guy that grew up in the church. And he had two things that he really wanted to talk about. As far as the, re this is the reason I can't get myself into church right now. I just can't do it. Number one was politics. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on politics this evening. So we'll suffice it to say this. His response to people in church as it relates to politics is that regardless of what side of the aisle we sit on, we're all jerks. That's all we'll say about politics this evening. I'm not sure he's wrong. The second thing that he said was that he can't wrap his head around the fact why we have to be Amway and convert and reach our quotas and grow our numbers. The way that it has been presented to him was that this whole idea of going and, going and receiving the lost and finding the lost and pulling them in was simply a way to make sure that we could fill these seats every week, have a larger offering, and therefore grow our business, and fully missing the business of the church in that. But I can certainly understand where he gets it from, right? This, this series that we're in the middle of sounds like a, well, okay, has everybody got their quota this week? We all sat and everybody talked to people about Jesus today. And so those are the two issues that he had. And I think what, he, what happens when we get into the middle of that is that we miss the heart of Jesus. And so in order to do that, we have to talk about the lost and we have to talk about sin. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time in Romans 6.23 and really dive into lostness, but also really dive into a solution to lostness. So Romans 6.23. I like the small groups, so we can kind of go interactive for a moment. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's, let's dive into it a little bit. What are wages? Salary. Salary. Why, how do you, why do you get paid? Why do you get paid a salary? Because you, you work. You do things and you get paid for it. It's what you get for what you, it's what you earn for what you do. Right? And so if I go pick a bunch of blueberries for this guy and I put them on, he's paying me by the pound, I'll get paid per pound for what I do. It's what I earn for what I do. In this situation, what I get paid for what I do here is severe. And the piece of death that they're talking about here is twofold. Number one, it goes back to the Garden of Eden and the reality that all of a sudden we're going to die physical deaths. But this also comes to the place where we're talking about a spiritual death that comes along with eternity and a separation that happens from our Lord and our God. And so let's put those right here for a minute. Wages, sin, death, here. And then glory of God over here. Because death separates us from this. Okay? Now, one of the greatest words in all of Scripture exists in this verse. Does anybody see it? Right here. Story does not end here. It continues through this word here. Somebody tell me the difference between these two words. Gift is given freely. Wages are what you earn. In fact, some translations actually go so far as to say the free gift of God. And make it really redundant and really redundant. Sorry. <laughs> I love the giver of the gift. He's the one with all the glory that we can't measure up to. And the gift is eternal life with him. Pretty amazing. We're going to do this real quick. This is my phone. And I would like to give this gift to our pastor. I've offered it. When does it become his? The moment he receives it. This is still an offering to him right now. In order for this gift to actually function in the way that it's intended, he has to receive it. I'm not letting you touch my phone. No, it's not going to happen. Yeah, right? <laughs> No, thank you. <laughs> I, know, I, know, I know a lot of what comes on that phone. I'm all set. Thank you very much. What's the solution? Separation, right? And this gift. How do we get from point A to point B? Yeah, this is classic navigator stuff now. This, it's the bridge, right? Through the cross. The cross bridges the gap. And we're able to walk across and receive the gift that's being offered. It connects point A and B. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By the way, um, what I've just done in a very simple way, because it pertains to this, is also offered to you if you are interested in beginning to share who Jesus is with some of these people in your crowd that you have compassion on. This is a very easy way to do it. Simply take this verse, walk through, put three things on one side, three things on the other, talk about the separation of the glory of God, and the cross goes in the middle, forming the bridge across the barrier that's created. And now you all are a bit more equipped than you were two minutes ago. Also in classic navigator fashion.
There's one other thing that he's that we talked about as we met the other day. And specifically around this idea of lostness. And I believe it's important for us in the church today, and so I'll bring it up. He said, I have no problem going to people who are struggling and who have nothing else to fall back on and letting them know what works for me. I think that's normal. I think that's how you become a friend. But if there are people who have other religious beliefs and religious things that, that they cling to, is it really my job to go upset that apple cart? I get lots of really fun questions when I go to lunch. It's just one of those things that happens. What do we do with this? I would suggest that we go back to verses. We talk about the posture of compassion and what it looks like. Because what we are talking about here is an everlasting divide between what we've earned by what we've done and what is glorious and what is good and right and perfect. The difficulty is you're going to get this conversation. What makes your truth claim of exclusivity more valuable and more valid than mine? And in most cases, simply because it's a Christian worldview that we're going to bring to the conversation, it will be rejected out of hand. If you're in any workplace, you know this to be true. What do we do with that? Here's the reality. Every major religion has its own exclusive claims to truth. If you walk up, to, whether it's, it's Judaism or Hinduism, or the, this is what we believe to be true, and therefore give ourselves to it. And so it's not the claim of exclusivity that's at issue. It's not the claim of exclusivity that's at issue. What is at issue is, why do you want me to give up what I have in order to take what you have? What makes your truth better than my truth? And in fact, in most of these cases, truth is considered as a, as a power grab. So what do we do with this? Here's the conclusion that I've come to. In most of these situations, what you're going to find in conversation is that we need to go through your faith and my faith and find the things that are the same and find the common ground so that we can coexist peacefully. I can still have the things that I have, you can still have the things you have, and we don't have to have this holy war going on wherever we are. Right? Here's what I've found to be true. There's a lot more going on in the differences than in the similarities. And here's what I would say. Every major religion in the world requires a significant level of performance in order to gain admittance into whichever form of heaven, glory, bliss, whatever we're talking about. It requires us to be able to follow perfectly whatever it is that has been laid out so that we can gain access, so that the weights shift the right way, whatever else. One of the main reasons that I end up sticking in Christianity and not bouncing to some of those other places that have some, some similar tenets in some instances is this. 
There is only one God in any of the major religions that is powerful enough, that is good enough, that is full of glory enough to actually become my savior. And I don't have to do it myself. I am not required to be my own savior. And the good news is, it was just even if you believed me about my perfectness at home, the reality is I fall short of God's glory. And when people get gut level honest, so do they. And it's a fascinating road into a different conversation. So I'll leave that with you to do with what you will. So the problem of lostness is that you need a savior. And if there is no savior available, then you have to be your own savior. And that's sobering pretty quickly when we're talking about eternity. And if we want to have a conversation about compassion now, the posture of compassion changes when we're talking about eternity of our, with our friends. And it's not an Amway search. It's not a fill the pews piece. It is a, if we want to have a conversation about life to the full, if we want to have a conversation about life everlasting, then we have to be able to share what it is that we truly believe through our scars, through our brokenness, with great compassion and recognition that the people that we're talking to are lost and they're broken. And they're looking for something to jam inside this part of them that's reserved for God and God only. And I suggest that we share the good news that they're not stuck here. That they actually have the opportunity to experience God in all his glory. Number four, prayer of the disciples. More importantly, a prayer request from Jesus. Verse 37, then he says to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. We have here, for those of you that are disciples of Jesus, we have a prayer request that he offers to his disciples. We live in Maine. You guys ever been to an apple orchard midway through October? When it's done, when harvest is over, what do you see? Huh? A lot of rotten apples on the ground. Trees are empty. There's a lot of rotten apples on the ground. Anybody heartbroken by that in the context that we're talking right now? We've missed the harvest. The prayer request here is not to work really hard to be more compassionate. That's not the prayer request. I would love to be known as compassionate as opposed to what I am actually known at in my house. Be quiet. And I think on a, on a gut level, if we're honest, we all want that attribute to be part of the way people might describe us. You know what's really great about them? They're really compassionate. 
But as I've just shared with you, not a lot of people see the church that way. But the request of Jesus is that we pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest for laborers. It's the only place I'll go Greek with you tonight. The word laborers is ergatis. And it actually means common field hand. It means a worker. What it basically is, is the person that gets on their knees, gets their hands in the dirt, gets a little bit dirty, and does the work that needs to be done to harvest. This is not an especially skilled position. This is not a position that requires a ton of training. These are the people that they would walk into and hire by the day. We've got to have harvest people. Let's go. You're going to go over here. You're going to work for the day. Here's what you need to do. Done. Workers. Not highly trained. Difficulty, according to the Barna Group, is that the majority of people do not get involved in sharing their faith with the lost and do not get involved with discipleship in general because they feel that they're not qualified. <coughs> Pardon me. And here's the reality. When we begin to talk about, and we'll hit discipleship in the coming weeks, but when we're talking about these things specifically, Please trust that the power that was strong enough to raise Jesus from the dead and lives inside of you can find the right words to move the hearts of your friends. The last thing I'll tell you that's a little scary is that as we're talking about praying for laborers, in general, as you begin to pray for laborers, you're going to pray within the framework of who you know. You're going to pray within the framework of the crowds that are near you with great compassion. And I have to tell you this honestly, it is likely that you may become the answer to your prayer. And if you want to look down into the beginning of chapter 10, the people that he had the prayer request with, and he called to him his 12 disciples, and gave them authority over unclean spirits and sent them out. They became the answer to the prayer that he asked. Now all of a sudden, here's what just happened, okay? Those things that are most dear to us immediately got in the way. Just now, in the moment, those things that are most important to us immediately got in the way. And it became, I don't know that I'm willing to risk this. I don't know that I'm willing to sacrifice that. I don't know willing. I don't know if I'm willing to give this up for the sake of this ideal of compassion, which I would love to have, but not at that cost. And I would challenge you in this by simply saying, if you've never had the opportunity to experience people that you love giving themselves over and being a part of that process and watching them change the things that are broken and heal the places that are messed up. You haven't lived. Somehow, in the way that we are created in the image of God, we are built for this to be the place that drives the most satisfaction the highest point of our creation. In fact, I would go so far as to say this is the top of the mountain. This is the summit. 
In fact, it's not too far from where the name of our church actually came from. We'll hit on it more as we talk about the idea of those lost people becoming disciples, and we get to help move them along and train them, and then we get to watch them become somebody who goes and tells their friends what's going on, not because we're selling Amway, but out of compassion, we see the brokenness, and all of a sudden, those that we love are starting to give away the things that they've received in love from Christ, and they're handing them off, and all of a sudden, we have reached what we've got as a pinnacle of life. Please trust me. I've had the honor to see it. And I don't tell you that to say, hey, look at me go. It's, it's humbling in every way imaginable. And yet it's the greatest thing going. So those things that you began to put in place and say, oh, I don't know if I'm ready to give that up. I don't know if I want to sacrifice that. I don't know if I can give this away. It's worth it. It's worth it. I'd like to pray with you. Um, obviously, in light of the context of this verse, I'm, I'm going to pray and I'm going to pause in a couple of places because there's probably people that are going through your mind even now that you would like to specifically pray for. But remember the prayers for laborers, people who are common workers who would come alongside those that you love and share the good news of Jesus with them. Father God, thank you for this request that we now get to turn in ways that I don't even understand, give back to you. This request for people to go into your harvest field as laborers and contribute to the harvest. Lord, I ask that you would, in fact, fill us to overflowing as we begin to share the things that are most important to us even as we learn to abide more in you, even as we learn to live and know the scriptures, and as we learn to have a heart for those around us that are lost, who are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Lord, would you send laborers? Would you send laborers into each of the crowds that we know? And Lord, if it's us, would you allow us to see the start of the next great awakening in our world? in our nation, in our cities, our towns, where we live, work, worship, and play. In Jesus' name, amen.